Okay, we're back in Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, 1 through 10 this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, our uh, prayer this morning echoes the psalmist's prayer from Psalm 119, that the law of your mouth is better to us than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your hands have made us and fashioned us. We ask now that you give us understanding so that we would learn uh, your commandments. May those who fear you, our Lord, see us and rejoice because we have hoped in your word. Amen. Let's uh, stand for the reading of God's word. I'll read aloud if you read silently with me. Galatians 2, 1 through 10. The Apostle Paul. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ, so that they might bring us to slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Michael forecasted the, uh, the point of this message with his assurance of pardon, reading from Ephesians uh, 2.20, that uh, the household of God is based on the foundation of the apostles with Christ as the cornerstone. So that's the question we want to focus on this morning. What is the foundation upon which the church stands? Paul's main argument through chapter 1 has been that the gospel I preach is not from men, but it is from Christ. And the the main uh, application of that argument is you shouldn't tamper with my gospel because it's not my gospel, it's Christ's gospel. In our passage, the argument continues much the same, but it advances uh, by showing... That while apostolic confirmation of Paul's gospel is helpful, it's not necessary. It's unnecessary because Paul's gospel comes from the same source as their gospel. It comes from a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
But it is helpful because it shows the unity that the apostles have in this single Christ-revealed gospel. So all of this is relevant for us in several ways. Um, In an age where there are a multiplicity of gospels, we see that there is, in fact, a gospel, a single gospel. Along the same lines, the gospel is also settled. Not only do we see a multiplicity of Gospels in our time, but we see that the Gospel seems to be a moving target, that that the contents of that word Gospel can mean a variety of things to a variety of people. So it's settled and it is um, a singular Gospel. The, The third thing is that the Gospel is singular and settled because of its source in Jesus. So the goal of this message is that we might know the singular and settled, peace-giving, life-bestowing, and saving gospel that comes from Jesus himself, and that we would have confidence in that. We must stand on a sure foundation if we'll hold fast and engage the turbulent world around us. Um, So first, let's turn to the singularity of the gospel, the singularity of the apostolic gospel. Humanity has been lured by false gospels since the beginning, since the garden. And our history is not really one of a stellar record of, of resisting those false gospels. And Doreen was commenting to me this week about how the history of God's people is just a struggle to tear down the high places. And we seem to never really get there. Likewise, in the church age, the church has also struggled. Early on, we struggle with Gnosticism, with Christological heresies. In our own day, the good news is that which is good to you. We're sort of barbarians, unabashed idolaters, doing that which is right in our own eyes. I wonder if you can imagine a secularist saying, I want to make sure I'm not running in vain So I wonder, will you just check me on this? It's preposterous, but that's exactly what Paul does. He says then in verses 1 and 2, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel I had proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. That's interesting. It took him 14 years to get back there to check this out. That's a long time of preaching the gospel before we better check this out. But that's because Paul had confidence. He knew where his gospel had come from, and he wasn't in doubt that his message or his calling were that he was, in fact, running in vain. Uh, It's also worth mentioning that his journey to Jerusalem seemed to include this confirmation of the gospel as a secondary, sort of almost an afterthought. We don't know whether this trip to Jerusalem uh, corresponds with Acts chapter 11 or Acts chapter 15. I I tend to think it, it corresponds to Acts chapter 11 because of Acts chapter 15, which is the Jerusalem Council, which was convened for the purpose of discussing circumcision. If that had been history by the time Paul wrote Galatians, he probably would have brought that up in the letter of, of Galatians. So I think this corresponds with Acts chapter 11, which is the story of the prophet Agabus saying, 
that there will be a famine. And so then the church at Antioch sends Paul and Barnabas down um, to bring relief to the saints in Jerusalem. So I think that's the context of this journey of Paul and Barnabas. This is Acts chapter 11. Um, Paul's choice of words here is, is very interesting. He says that he went to make sure that I was not running in vain or had not run in vain. Paul believes so strongly in the principle of the singularity of the gospel of Jesus Christ um, that if his, if his gospel was in contradiction with the gospel of the other apostles, he would have been running in vain. It would have been pointless, so a worthless 14 years. That's how strongly he believes that there is one gospel and not several. It would have been a different gospel. And, and again, that's not the temperature of the water that we swim in today. We, we live in a society where t-ball teams don't keep score because everyone's a winner. No, no one is running in vain because everyone assigns their own purpose to their lives and, and the meaning of life is whatever you make it. Even in the church, broadly speaking, the attitude more and more seems to be as long as you're doing your best with all your heart to serve the Lord, what, you're, what you believe doesn't really matter, you're doing His will. As long as you're doing your best. Lost today is the Pauline notion that my gospel must be the same as the Apostles' gospel or else I'm running in vain. In other words, there is a gospel. One. I've observed uh, quite a few men by now, even over the past few years, be examined for office in the church with my interactions with the PCA, including myself and Michael and Rob and Brian. Um, and the, there's a number of reasons for these examinations, but chief among them, I think, is to get to the bottom of the question, do you hold and do you teach the gospel? The apostolic Pauline, Petrine gospel. Is that what you hold to? Likewise, a part of the, the new membership process that we've been putting together for the church is for the elders to sit down with the candidate and, and examine them, ask them what their understanding is of the gospel and how it impacts their lives. Do they believe the same gospel? Are they adding any meritorious works to their profession? Are they Is there any aspect of the gospel that has been removed in their thinking? And the point of such meetings, whether it's uh, apostolic, whether it's at the presbytery level or the local church level, is not to be grumpy sticks in the mud. It's just that we believe that there is such a thing as a Christ-revealed singular gospel, and for the church to allow that gospel to go unchecked in its teachers and members would really be irresponsible shepherding of the flock. That's the chief role of the leaders of the church, is to shepherd the gospel. So, I would ask you to consider your personal understanding of this singular gospel of Jesus Christ. Do the contents of the gospel you believe match the gospel of the Bible? Examine and identify in your own experience where you tend to insert your own meritorious works. Or ask yourself, can you articulate what it is that happened on the cross and how does that affect you? These are important questions and it doesn't hurt to ask the elders or a friend you respect, am I running in vain? 
examine me on this because it's a humbling idea, but Paul, who seemed to be 100% sure that his gospel was correct, still checked with the other apostles, am I running in vain? So there is a gospel. That's the first point. There's a gospel, a singular gospel. The next is that we turn, uh, we look at here is the settledness of the gospel. There is a settled gospel. The contents which the word contains are settled. Um, a startling feature of the book of Galatians is seen in this, this sentence, circumcision is a gospel issue. Circumcision is a gospel issue. Remember that sentence, because to me it carries a lot of weight. Startling may not be the first word that would have come to your mind, but I think it is startling. This concept of circumcision being a gospel issue is a bit of a cold splash on an increasingly warming frog in a pan of increasingly inclusivistic water. Inclusivism can be very tempting when real-life people are involved. I mean, it's easy to read Galatians and say, yes, the Judaizers were adding to the gospel. Anathema, right? That's fairly easy. We're removed by 2,000 years and half of a globe, right? It's harder when a friend or family member is standing in your living room but doing fundamentally the same thing that they were doing. I've had people tell me, and the poor, the poor Roman Catholics, it's hard not to pick on them when you're preaching Galatians. I, I, you can't help it. But I've had people tell me, Roman Catholics believe in Jesus. They serve Jesus better than I do. I'm not going to say they're not believers. They're so close. They believe that they're sinners. They believe in the blood of Jesus for their sins. But we have to pause for a moment and ask, do they really believe that? I mean, if they are believers in the genuine article Roman Catholicism, does their gospel really present Jesus as a sufficient sacrifice? Does the re-sacrificing of Jesus on the altar of the Mass week by week really suggest that they're resting in the once-for-all historical propitiatory death of Christ on the cross? Do the the ideas of confession and penance, do those things really demonstrate a confident faith in an alien righteousness of Christ imputed to us? See, that's why the, the, the idea of circumcision is a gospel issue is so impactful and so startling because we can apply that elsewhere. They were only changing one thing. How many things do these people change? Circumcision is a gospel issue. Imputed alien righteousness... <laughs> is a gospel issue. So I think you can see what I mean, that inclusivism, when real people are involved, uh, is a very tempting thing for us. And we have to remember in these challenging situations, circumcision was a gospel issue. And I think we can safely say that the Galatian teachers espoused the name of Jesus. I mean, they probably believed in Jesus' death on the cross for, the, for sins. They probably believed Jesus was the Son of God. I mean, if they didn't believe these things, that's probably what Paul would have written about rather than the circumcision issue. 
So they believed in the basics of Christian faith, but they only added one thing, one simple meritorious work to the gospel. We see in three uh, verses 3 to 5 that this addition is really a perversion of the settled gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 3, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us to slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You see what he's saying here. For him to compromise on this one, one thing would have been to pervert the gospel. I heard a good story. I don't know. I've heard it attributed to Sproul, but I couldn't find whether or not that was true. But whether or not it was Sproul or not is still a good story. Um, he, he went out to dinner with several, several Christians. The waiter asked whether they would like to order an alcoholic beverage. They declined, and, and one woman said, No, we're Christians. To which Sproul replied, in that case, I'll have a scotch. <laughs> See, circumcision was not the issue here. Circumcision as a mandatory salvific act was the issue. On another occasion, he actually did circumcise Timothy, right? He didn't circumcise Titus, but he did Timothy. Timothy so as not to create undue offense. And Timothy is a different situation. He was half Jewish, so it makes sense culturally. But more importantly, no one was telling Timothy, you must be circumcised to be saved. That's the issue in Paul's mind. It wasn't circumcision. It was circumcision as a meritorious act. So Paul and Titus not yielding here illustrates Paul's point as well, that the apostles did not add to his gospel. They didn't say, yes, that's good stuff, Paul, but please in the future circumcise future converts. They didn't even ask Titus to be circumcised. In verse 4, Paul shadows an argument that he'll unpack really in depth later in chapter 5. Um, but it displays the nature of the corruption of this this um, perversion that these people were bringing in. He said, false brethren slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery. So chapter 5, he really unpacks this in, in a much more clear way. So chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, he says, for freedom Christ has set, set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. So this concept of freedom is essential to Paul's understanding of the gospel. By by adding one meritorious work to the gospel, you add the whole law to the gospel as a burden that we must keep. Either we're justified by our union with Christ and His imputed righteousness and His law-keeping, or we're saved by our own law-keeping. And there's, there's no middle ground there. There's no gray area. 
So when Paul says that they wanted to bring them to slavery, he means that they wanted to bring them to the slavery of the law as an impossibly burdensome obligation from which in Christ we're made free. So my prayer is that each one of us this morning knows that freedom, that we're not, in some sense, trying to labor under the burden of trying to please God by our own meritorious works and law-keeping. The gospel is good news, and it's news of freedom, and it's settled grace. It's settled news. Finally here, the third reason uh, is that is that the singularity and the subtleness of the gospel uh, is a result of the source of the gospel. The singularity and subtleness of the gospel is a result of the source of the authority of the gospel. Um, Back in Westcliff, especially as a teenager, I spent as much time as I could at the local reservoir, Lake Deweese, and our favorite spot was across the dam, and there's no road to get there, so either you park below and hike up the creek about a half mile and up kind of a cliff, or you hike, you park across the creek and have to hike through the canyon and over there about a half mile also. Or there's a dam and there's gates on either side of the dam, and the gates have wings extending out over the one side and the water side, and you could kind of grab and swing yourself underneath these wings and walk across the dam, swing under the other side, and get to our favorite spot, thereby relieving a lot of hiking. Um, so as a teenager, um, of course I did this, um, <laughs> and, and some friend, family friends were visiting one time, and, and we were going to go to the lake for a barbecue, so I went out naturally to fish early, and when I saw them arrive, I came back using my preferred method, and my, my dad's friend said to me, Rules don't apply to pastor's kids, do they? <laughs> he, he's also a PK, and PKs are known for having authority issues. I did. Do. I do. Um, I lost my place here. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. <laughs> so... In the, in the case of the, the, the dam, the purpose of the gates was twofold, to keep people safe and to keep people from tinkering with the, the components of you know, where you could release the water. And I thought, well, I'm not going to fall. I'm fairly confident. I'm not going to hurt myself. And, of course, I'm not going to mess with those things. So I'm good. I don't have to obey the rules. Both, really, were accurate assessments. I wasn't going to fall and hurt myself, and I wasn't going to mess with those things. But I became a law unto myself. Rather than obeying the rules, I decided what the law was. And it's not just me, and it's not just PKs. It's people in general. We all have authority issues. We all want to be a law unto ourselves. Think about Adam and Eve. Think about... Aaron and the golden calf. We seem to err, I think, in this issue of authority in two ways. And the result either way is the same, is that man becomes authority unto himself. On the one hand, we have an anarchist approach, where every man does what is right in his own eyes. I define my gender. I define what is good. I define my truth. I define what it means for me personally to worship God. The other side of things is an authoritarian kind of side. And again, 
poor, poor Rome gets picked on here, but the, the church will tell me what to believe. The, the church will define what Scripture says. The Pope will tell the king what to do. The Reformation defined clearly the doctrine of sola scriptura, that Scripture alone is our authority to teach us what it means for man to believe in God and what duty God requires of man. Whereas Rome said, Scripture and tradition of the church carry equal weight, and the church defines the interpretation of Scripture so that you have sola ecclesia rather than sola scriptura. Which, that form of authority is attractive to many, especially in a society starved of structure and starved of ultimate authority. Men have authority issues, and they're expressed in an anarchist outlook or an authoritarian outlook. But I think the way to bring balance to these problems is to have a monarchist outlook. That is to say, Jesus is king, and he's our authority. Paul presents this balance in a beautiful way here. He goes on and says, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also for mine to the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. It's interesting here. Notice his hesitation to overstate the authority of the apostles. He says, and from those who seem to be influential. That's a weird thing to say to me. And and then he says, what they were makes no difference to me. He's talking about apostles here. God shows no partiality. And then he says it again. I say those who seemed influential. And that James, Cephas, and John seemed to be pillars. Now, in no way should we hear him denigrating the authority of the apostles here. The the apostles clearly, biblically, have a special calling in God's church. Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians that the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles with Christ as the cornerstone. John, when recounting his vision of the, the city of God, he recounts 12 foundations with the names of the apostles inscribed on the foundations. These people were important figures and they carry a lot of weight and a lot of authority, but we have to remember the context here. The argument that Paul has been making is the gospel of those who demand circumcision must not be followed because it's contrary to the true gospel, which I preach to you, which is not my gospel, but is Christ's gospel. So his point, I think, with regard to the authority of the apostles is They don't have any ultimate authority to decide what goes in the the box that we call gospel. They have no authority there. Both Paul and the pillars are passive recipients of the gospel. It says, I have been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as they have been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. 
We see here the reason or the purpose behind their affirmation of Paul's gospel. It says, for, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me. So it's, it's he who worked. That's the important element here. He who worked. Jesus. Their authority in them is not in themselves, but in the king who called them to be his instruments in the world. You may remember when we had our particularization service, the, the elders um, extended the right hand of fellowship to the other elders when they were after it was all said and done. And, and those men didn't have, don't they don't have any intrinsic authority, but they did that as if to say, as men who have been called of God to preach the gospel, we recognize in you men a calling to preach the gospel. We affirm your calling in the gospel that you preach as the same as ours, so we welcome you into our fellowship. And that's what the apostles did for Paul and Barnabas. That they extended the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me so that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So I, Michael was commenting this morning, every text, you could spend forever extracting truths from it. So there's so many truths we could extract. But the one thing I wanted to focus on here and that I see here is, is that there's a great balance on the topic of authority here in this passage. On the one hand, the apostles are viewed properly so as gatekeepers of the church. Paul checked with them to see that he was not running in vain. If his gospel was different, they could have said, you're running in vain. They could have withheld the right hand of fellowship. They serve as gatekeepers. They do have a calling upon their lives to be to some authority. So on the one hand, the apostles are viewed as gatekeepers. And on the other hand, Paul says, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. So they're mere men. They're they're called by God to a particular task. The ultimate authority is Christ. We find here that the, the principle that the office bearers of the church are to be respected and, and not venerated. So, so the saints of the saints of old, or the preachers we respect, we can highly esteem them as men, but but as broken, fallen men called by God to a particular task. We should never venerate them as something more than tools in the hands of God. But at the same time, we can honor their special calling. God has placed in their lives and ours. We, we, we honor men like R.C. Sproul or the, the Ligonier Teaching Fellows. Or we honor men like John Calvin and the Reformers, Westminster Divines, the Puritans, Augustine, the Apostles. We can honor these men. But we should not so much hold aloft their, their skill or their intuition into the world around us, but we should instead esteem them as weak, sinful men whom God has used to point us to Christ. I think there's a danger of that in the, maybe in the Reformed world, especially because we value preaching, right? And, oh, he's so good at preaching. And I, I know for me, early on, John Piper was that guy for me. Man, I mean, I just, I began to think in a, a Piperian way. That, that was my systematic theology. Um, and I've gone to the, his conferences and I sat right behind his bald head and then I met him and it's like, 
you know, there's people taking pictures with the man and, and getting book signed. I'm thinking, he's just a man. I don't want my book signed by him. I want to hear him preach. There's a danger of that, of venerating these men who we respect. We see in this passage a proper authority structure within the church, which is really very practical to us. We're in, uh, no man is head of the church but Christ, yet he appoints officers within his kingdom to function in positions of authority on his behalf. And both sides of those that equation are critical to understand. Christ is head and he appoints officers. And to lose either side of that coin is extremely dangerous and, and leading to, to self-defined gospels, ultimately, by men rather than God. Um, so before we close here, I want to hit on this seemingly obscure verse, verse 10. He's talking about the gospel, and all of a sudden he says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So it's almost as if Paul, when he's writing, thinks, oh yeah, they did ask me to do one more thing beyond kind of the gospel presentation I gave them. Do remember the poor. But then he goes on to say, but I, but I already was doing that. So they didn't add anything to me. I think that's the sense of what he's saying here. This also fits in very well with the the uh, Acts 11 interpretation because the very reason he was there was to bring aid to the distressed and to the poor. Um, so the poor in verse 10 are most likely seen here as the, the Jewish brethren or Jewish Christians in Jerusalem devastated by the famine. And, it, and this is a case or a cause to which we see Paul being very committed throughout his, his epistles as well. He, send money to the Church of Jerusalem. Um, this also fits within the gospel context of the rest of the passage, even though it, it seems strange at first. But the apostles, uh, both the pillars and Paul, were unified on the gospel. And here we see they were unified on the fruit of the gospel. They wanted it to bear fruit. And he said, well, I'm bearing fruit in the same way. They're already connected. The fruit of the, the singular gospel is there. So I just say, may we be a church who hold fast to the settled gospel and acts on that gospel. That we care for those in need, especially for the needs of the brethren. Uh, we're, we're approaching the end of this section of scripture wherein Paul is vehemently defending his apostleship and his gospel. Um, and, and I think there's one more passage along the same lines. Um, it's a, to be honest, it's a little bit tempting for me to rush over this section and get to the meat of the book about justification and the law and freedom. But there's a reason Paul spends so much time laying the foundation for those things. If we do not have a sure footing on which to discuss God's law or the doctrine of justification by faith alone, if we don't have an objective gospel of Jesus Christ, then we don't have any of those things to discuss at all. It is the gospel delivered to us by the apostles, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, and it's on them that the household of God is built. So my closing exhortation this morning is simply that it, as you face the battles of this life that, that bombard 
your understanding of the gospel, maybe bouts with your own fleshly desires for autonomy or meritorious work, or it might be battles with friends and family and acquaintances who, who deny any sense of ultimate authority. Or on the other hand, it may be battles with others who are enslaved to an authority that's, that's not Christ. Whatever the battles may be, that we remember that we do have a solid foundation on which to stand. The, the foundation of the gospel that is settled. The gospel of the apostles and of Christ. And so I encourage you not to be shaken as you go into the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this word from the Apostle Peter that you've handed down to us through the generations and that we can know Christ and be saved by his blood and by no work of ourselves. We pray we would believe that in Jesus' name. Amen.